Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Sport, but not as you know it. Nothing is ever quite as expected. Amazing sports stories from the BBC World Service. If the story is wriggly, contentious or hard to tame, I'll cover it. Listen now wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello. Today we're talking about our immune systems, our barriers against illness that pull up the drawbridge to infections. But there are times when they can use a little more help. And I don't just mean with smoothies or chicken soup. New treatments are now able to change the behaviour of our immune system, for example, to help it find cancerous cells that would otherwise go undetected. These treatments aren't traditional pharmaceuticals, which are often made from synthetic chemicals, but biopharmaceuticals made from living organisms like bacteria or enzymes. My guest today is a pioneer in such biotech therapies. Behija Jalal grew up in Casablanca and pushed back against the expectations of Moroccan society at the time to follow her dream and become a scientist. Today, she's a role model in business who also follows the best science, and with it, she says, her heart. Bahija Jalad, CEO of biotech company Immunocore, welcome to The Life Scientific. Thank you for having me. Now, Bahija, I want to start with T-cells, which we heard a lot about during the pandemic, of course, and the race to develop vaccines. These T-cells are a type of white blood cell. They launch these precision attacks on infected cells in our bodies. But they can only fight what they can see. You work on treatments that increase their ability to track harmful cells down. Can you tell me briefly how this works? So, you know, when I think about T-cells, it's like sentinels in our body, and it's actually the best weapon we have in the body. And so they have sensors. They come, they touch, and they see, is this cell belong here or not? So what we did is to take these sensors, if you will, made them very potent in a way that they can detect and make visible tumor cells or infected cells. So that's one part of the molecule that we did. On the other side, we attach something that's going to bring, we call it an effector function, that actually will take any T cell in the body and brings it closer to the tumor cell to kill these tumor cells. So that's really how the technology works. So each T cell then has two sensors, one that tells it where to go and one that gets it to connect to an infected cell. Correct. So that's basically in one side, they will find the tumor cells and bind to the tumor cells. On the other side, they will basically bring and redirect any T cell to come closer to kill the tumor cells. And of course, this is a very different sort of treatment from, say, traditional chemotherapy. This is absolutely different. So chemotherapy was basically the slash hammer. You know, Mm. you just kill everything, and at the same time, you kill some normal cells. But what we have now, uh, this technology is just trying to mimic and understand what our powerful immune system does. And one thing that happened in cancer that became really amazing is the fact that these therapies are extending life for patients. We're going to talk a bit more about the science later on. But uh, Behija Jalal, let's talk about you. You were born in, in Casablanca, the sixth of seven children. Uh, And it was there that a family tragedy set you on course to become a scientist. 
Yes, definitely. Uh, so I was uh, nine years old when my father died. He was 46 years old that just went to the clinic for, you know, a kidney stone, but never came back. Um, so we believe it was a medical error because he should not have been operated on. Apparently, we would not know everything. Mm. But that's really the moment where I I think I stopped being a child because I remember everything that happens afterwards, uh, mm. nine years old, and specifically asking the why, wanting to understand, you know, what happens. And, and so that's really, for me, is what put me into that quest for understanding and understanding the science. My father, he had a thirst for knowledge, but that love for knowledge, he wanted his kids to have that. So he constantly, constantly wanted us to, to learn and to, to have that love of learning. But of course, after the age of nine, after he died, it was your mother who brought you and your siblings up. What was she like? Amazing. And really a strong, strong woman. So she absolutely pushed all of us and encouraged us, you know, to follow our dreams and that nothing is impossible. And that was even more remarkable because she didn't go to school herself. But I think I absolutely believe she's one of the most intelligent people I've I've ever encountered. Mm. And she was extremely resilient. You know, raising seven kids at that time was not easy. But I owe everything to her. Everything. Mm. What was it like for you growing up without a father in a patriarchal society like Morocco at that time? It was not easy, I, I have to say, because the good thing about our culture at that time is that they all believe that it takes a village to raise a child. After you're labeled orphan, everybody, everybody now wants to tell you what to do. Right. That was the case for us. So thank goodness that we had this mother very much protective and very much encouraging us from the inside. Because if we have listened to just society is why bother? You're going to finish maybe high school and just go have a family and, mm -hmm. and children. Yeah. You were the second in your family to go to university in Paris. What made you decide to study there? I really, frankly, didn't decide to study there. There was an intervention. <laughs> <laughs> intervention by my mother and my family, but specifically by my mother, actually, to send me to Paris. Because after high school, I joined the university in Morocco and my quest of wanting to answer the questions, the whys and everything really led me into a little bit more activism, the freedom of press and everything. And it was a turbulent year where we did a lot of strikes and things like that. So it was a little bit dangerous. And so she was seeing me becoming an activist and maybe not doing what I'm supposed to do at the university <laughs> and arranged with my sisters. And they got a letter from, from the University of Paris saying I was accepted. Hmm. She absolutely had that intervention, came on Thursday. She applied on, on, on your behalf? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Going on Thursday, <laughs> and she said, you're leaving on Sunday, and I did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a huge change in your life, a different environment to adjust to. I mean, what was it like for a young woman arriving for the first time in Paris? The first year was really tough. I absolutely didn't like Paris at that time. 
it started with my first um, adventure with uh, seeing the sun in the winter and leaving the house with the t-shirt and realizing it's actually really cold. Just because the sun's out. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't exist in Casablanca. <laughs> uh, and everything was different. So it was very overwhelming. And then after the first year, I settled and the rest is history. This is mm. my love. I love Paris. You gained your master's degree in, in biology from Paris Diderot University. That's also known as Paris 7. Then your PhD, your doctorate in, in physiology from Pierre Marie Curie University, Paris 6. And I love the, the numbering of the, the different, you know, the University of Paris broke up into these different numbers. But then you headed off to Germany to work at the prestigious Max Planck Institute of Biochemistry. And you arrived at a good time, didn't you? Because it was just at the beginning of studies into what's called targeted therapy. Yes. Yes. I find myself really lucky because I was at the right time at the right place. Um, I'll take luck any day. Yep. <laughs> so it was targeted therapy. That was the first time, you know, looking at what we call the signal transduction, like understanding the circuitry inside the cells and how it works, and then what goes wrong when there is cancer. And so that right. was a really interesting way of looking now inside the cells instead of just coming with chemotherapy or something like that where you just destroy everything mm. so yeah and how important were these studies that you were doing in Germany into the development of targeted therapies? They were really important because I was lucky to be in a lab of somebody who discovered tyrosine kinases that became extremely important in the fight against cancer. Mm. So these kinases are usually molecules at the surface of the cell that signal to the cell to divide and live and go these, on. These are basically enzymes exactly. that, that give mess tell the cell to grow, tell proteins. Exactly. To, so you to do can imagine when they're regulated either by making more of them or having mutations or something like that, that then brings cancer. So mm. going after these kinases directly, that was the start of the era of targeted therapy. We're going to come back and talk about these enzymes in a little while. But when your research contract came to an end in Germany, you had plans to go back home to Morocco. What stopped you? After my PhD, I had two choices. You know, one is to go back to Morocco, but that meant I would just say goodbye to research and just teach because at that time we didn't have the infrastructure for mm. research. So that's really what got me to go to, to Germany and be in Max Planck Institute there. I, I just wanted to see how I can be a researcher myself, then do postdoctoral studies. And then I, I met my husband, and then the rest is history. I never, <laughs> I never went back. <laughs> um, he will say he saw me at the the very the first day I arrived in the in the lab. I could not because I was meeting everyone. Mm. We started being together in January. We get engaged in April, and we get married in September. So wow. less than a year. Okay. <laughs> That's impressive. When it's right, it's right. When it's right, it's right. exactly, exactly. You'd also begun to learn to speak German. How, I can ask, how many languages do you speak now? I mean, clearly Arabic and English. Yeah, and French Fre and, and French, and of German. course, and German. Yeah. So if you don't mind me asking, what language do you dream in? Well, I literally, if I'm speaking to somebody in my dream that speaks English, I speak English or right. Arabic with somebody else. So I think you get to a point where this is possible. <laughs> 
Well, speaking of dreams, it was again time for you to think about following your dreams. Your husband, Ronald, had just finished his PhD in Germany, and you both decided to move to California, in part because of his research. What did that mean for your work? So it was the time where I moved to the company that my postdoc advisor had in California, but I was not working for the company. You know, at that time... I didn't want to work for a company because I thought they don't do science. So I took my PhD students and continued the lab and the research. In this company? In, in this, this company, Sujin. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, without being affiliated with Sujin. So right, it's a right, little bit right. complicated, but I always, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't do things uh, in a simple way. <laughs> so at what point then did you decide to leave what was academia and move into industry? Uh, you, you would think it's a cliche, but one patient came. She had colon cancer. She participated in the clinical trials and she benefited from the treatment that Sujan was developing. And she insisted that she wanted to come and thank the researchers because they allowed her to spend Christmas with her family and so on. And I remember at that time really vividly coming out from that room saying, this is it. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And since then, I never looked back. So you joined the company and you started just as trials were getting underway on a new targeted therapy. Correct. In what way was it new? So it was really new because at that time, there were only few labs targeting tyrosine kinases. And I remember very well, we had Nobel Prize winner, Eddie Fisher, and he used to tell us, I just don't think it's possible. You're going to be melting people. What was it that they were concerned about? It's basically because we have them everywhere, right? So oh. these kinases are not just in tumors. They're also in normal tissue. Oh, I see. Yeah. So that's why he used to say you're going to melt people. But actually, because they express so much in cancer, you can differentiate between the two. They don't affect the, the, the healthy cells. Yeah. Not yet. Yeah, not to the same extent, for sure. And this drug is an inhibitor. So it stops these enzymes from doing their job. Correct. So in the normal cell, they allow the signal to go in and say, you can divide, you can have the growth signal, which is needed, you know, for us to continue to be alive, you know, for some mm. cells. But the problem is cancer is anarchic, if you will. They take something from us, they hijack that. So that means you have this signal coming out of control or sometimes they're mutated in a way that they don't need signals anymore. They can just tell the cell to, to continue to grow. Mm. And that growth brings the cancer. So what we did is to have an inhibitor to try to go directly into the tumor cells and starve them, basically, from that signal of growth and then die this way. So that's the essence of the kinase inhibitors. Mm. So it was so new that we didn't know what was going to happen. And I actually, we failed in the first two compounds that we put into the clinic. And then the third one, we put all the learning there into the third one. And the rest is history. So I'm, um, it's, it's on, on the mm. market mm. a long time ago. It's incredible. As you are rising through the ranks of industry, you're also coping with more responsibility at home. You'd had your first daughter when you were in Germany, and then while you were in California, you had your second. Did you ever feel any pressure to slow down? 
You know, it's it's funny. In Germany, yes. <laughs> it's almost expected where everybody, I was absolutely stunned because everybody in the lab assumed that I would not come back. And that was completely foreign to me. Not to come back at all? Or? Yeah, at least to three years, if wow. not at all. But most of the time, they don't come back at all because at that time, there was not the infrastructure to even have enough nurseries and, and so on. So that was quite an interesting experience. But then after your second child, presumably, you just took that all in your stride. <laughs> it's my second child. Actually, while I was pregnant... A woman who was my supervisor called me into her office and she told me, you know, it should be it. If you want to stay in science, having a third child should not be in your plan. And that really shocked me having that in California, which was also very, very and surprising. From a woman, from a woman yeah, yeah. Well, after a few years, a new opportunity came knocking. You were headhunted by another pharmaceutical company, Medimmune. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you'd worked in chemotherapy research, then in these targeted therapies. And then the third key phase of cancer treatment was just getting underway called biologics or biopharmaceuticals. How was this different? Uh, it was absolutely fantastic because that was the first foray with the immune system you know when we have antibodies in our uh, system that protect us that will go and fight diseases or or something like that and for the first time we started learning to actually make these antibodies in the lab and going and treating patients with these antibodies so it was a huge era, I would say, for biologics. And I always want to learn more. And this was a new area, a new advancement in the fight against cancer and other diseases as well. So yeah, I went to Medimmune and a year later, I think it was bought by AstraZeneca. So again, just right place, right time. <laughs> I mean, that, that I mean, I, I remember it's in, in, in the news, AstraZeneca paid was it $15 billion yes. for Medibune. The New York Times, I've got to hear, New York Times said it appeared to be the largest purchase ever of an American biotech company and perhaps the most emphatic sign yet of the push by big drug makers into the biotechnology business. What was the general reaction to the deal? So the reaction was mixed and very negative as well. You know, they overpaid for Medimmune. But actually, in the hindsight, there was the best decision by AstraZeneca, frankly, you know, to get into a new area that always there is risk in, in this mm. business. But this was a very well calculated risk. But it was not an easy thing to wake up every day and see in the newspapers that they overpaid for Medimmune. But we took the challenge to push us, actually. You say that when AstraZeneca bought Medimmune, you fought hard to show that it was worth the money. What did you do? Basically convinced AstraZeneca, if they keep us autonomous, not independent, but autonomous, that we can increase the productivity and increase the biologics. And we actually accomplished that goal. We became 50% of AstraZeneca's pipeline. We get our first product on the market in 2015, one year early. you know, early than, <laughs> uh, than what we promised. And I had the privilege of developing one of the first wave of immunotherapy. So that was Imfinzi at that time. And we saw what was really remarkable, that you have people surviving 
with their cancer a long time. And today you can see that, you know, biologics are absolutely integral part of AstraZeneca's pipeline. Well, you said you're very proud of having such a diverse team at MedImmune. How do you define diversity? For me, I advocate for changing the narrative about diversity. It's not something that is just fair. It's absolutely essential for business and especially the business where I am for innovation. So I absolutely believe in the diversity of thought and we bring business cases for everything. And I think we absolutely need to bring the business case for diversity to convince everyone why this is good for business. It's not just nice to have. Mm. If we come from the same background, we have the same cultural references, we will think the same in a way. Mm. But if we come from different cultures, different settings and other things, we just we are much richer because we look at things differently. And so four years into it, I said, I feel it. I can feel the diversity. I can see it. And I was very proud by the time I was finished at MedImmune, we had 51%, I think, were women. We had 12% African-Americans. We had, you know, 30% were Chinese. It was just fantastic. Like that diversity was, mm. was absolutely there. Then you made the decision in 2019 to move to your current role as CEO of the biotech company Immunocore. At that time, when you moved 2019, Immunocore wasn't generating money. But you were so impressed with their work on a treatment of a form of cancer called metastatic uveal melanoma, cancer that, that grows behind the eye and then almost always spreads to the liver. Why was it so important for you to be part of the team developing this? When Immunocore came, at first glance, the answer was no. I was not going to join the company. And then I saw from Sir John Bell, he's, he's known here, he showed me the data. And I knew that they had something really special as a new pioneering technology. But one thing that really struck me, and that's where I made my decision to want to know more, was to see that this disease occurs in the liver. Nothing has worked. So for this technology to work there, I thought this is different. This is something novel that they have that we need to, to bring to, to the market. That's how I came to Immunocore. And this is the new drug that they started trialing and you started getting involved with called Kimtrak. Yes. Well, in January 2022, Kimtrak received federal drugs agency approval in the US. Not only was this the first FDA-approved treatment available for this type of cancer, uveal melanoma, it was also the first T-cell receptor therapy, TCR therapy, to receive regulatory approval, which has been described as opening the door for other TCR cancer drugs. What do you think the possibilities are then in the future for this type of treatment? I absolutely believe that we are just at the start, that we can conquer more cancers that way. This was like the absolute pride that we had these results. I remember I cried, actually, because to be doing something for these patients, and especially the uveal melanoma patients, once they're diagnosed with metastasis, they have literally one patient told me, the doctor says, just go put your affairs in order because they had 12 months to live. So to be able to, to make a dent in this cancer was really amazing. And now we believe this is just the start. 
Was this a sudden successful experiment where you suddenly saw this working that was unexpected? Well, it was unusual, right? Because usually to see something that increased the overall survival, as we call it, to that extent and that early was really, really amazing. And this is a new dimension of what we were doing. It's opening a new chapter in the fight against cancer. The same way as, you know, if we look at radiotherapy, chemotherapy, biologics with monoclonal antibodies, now we absolutely have this chapter. And to be part of it is pretty humbling. I remember probably the same with you as, as, as children growing up thinking, you know, well, if I want to make a change in the world, I want to find a cure for cancer. Correct. Uh, is that what we're looking for, a cure? I mean, what, how would you define the success that we're heading towards? Well, I think this is definitely the intent, right? But making people live longer is really the ultimate goal for cancer. We used to always say, you know, we, we want to see people transform cancer from being a deadly disease to at least a chronic disease, you know, where people can live with that. And that's really what we are seeing. You know, if you look at with this advancement in the fight against cancer, it's very heartwarming for me to see when there are marshes with breast cancer, you see people putting um, uh, 11 years patient survival. That didn't happen when I started. It was a very much a dead sentence. So we have to continue our fight to really make cancer a, a more a chronic disease, mm. if you will, and make people live because that's really what makes a difference. I, I'm sort of wondering what I'm doing with my life working in quantum physics when, when I could be doing the good that you're, you're doing. I'm sort of humbled by it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in the last few years, Bahija, people have begun to recognise you not just for your achievements, both in, in the lab and in the boardroom, but also as someone with an inspirational story uh, of success. You've won the Healthcare Businesswoman's Association Woman of the Year Award. You've been chair of the, the influential AWIS, the Association for Women in Science, which is an organisation advancing gender equality. In, in doing so, you've become a role model for women, but I know it's not something you found easy to come to terms with. No, I. our culture is about being humble. It's not about talking about yourself. And so I had a real difficulty talking about myself, even telling my story. I remember the first time one uh, fantastic woman made me tell the story. I was literally crying and saying, I can't stand up and say all that. And really what convinced me is to see it that it's not about me. It gives an opportunity to other women who were told don't have the third child or, you know, something like this, that it is possible. You know, if it gives them the encouragement that they can come from challenging backgrounds sometimes and then make it. Then I made peace with that, and so I embrace it as using it as a platform. Well, an inspirational story. Bahija Jalal, thank you very much for sharing your life scientific. Thank you for having me. Amazing Sports Stories is the podcast going beyond the usual tales of title wins and trophies to bring you some of the world's most unforgettable sports stories. Okay, let's do this. Stories about courage. Oh, no. My headlamp fell down. Everything is dark. I can see nothing. Stories about the myths. Damnation be upon every one of you. As long as you shall live, County Mayor will never win another all-Ireland. 
and stories about the legends. He really was the person who, for the first time in sports, put Iran on the map. Amazing sports stories from the BBC World Service. It's sport, but not as you know it. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.